Good morning. How we doing? <laughs> Sounds like a fun group out in that parking lot. Wish I could see more of it. I certainly hear it. <laughs> Enough of that, you guys. So. All right, so we are continuing our series this morning, The Word Art of Peter, and uh, we're getting into the sections today that deal with relationships between uh, husbands and wives. Some of you might have noticed that my wife was not sitting by me this morning. It's because I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, and I'm just trying to keep my distance a little bit. Uh, I don't have a fever or anything, but I got a bit of a head cold going, so just trying to keep everyone as safe as possible. So, and Alicia said, I don't want to be sitting over there on the side when you go up there to stand. I'm just like hanging out there alone by myself. So I said, okay. And she sat there and I sat there. So, but we're all good. Uh, and I, I just want to encourage us as we're jumping into this, you know, uh, this isn't just about husbands or wives this is about people, and even though we're talking about specific certain circumstances, uh, I think there are lessons there for all of us. Just like we don't have to be literal slaves to glean the goodness of what Peter's saying. So if you're single, if you're married, if you're widowed, whatever your situation is, I think that these words still apply to us. So we've already talked about submission and respect regarding human institutions, including the ways that we carry ourselves in the political arena, our opinions that we carry about things. Then last week we talked about um, submission and respect that could even take place in something as horrible, a context as horrible as slavery. This week, we're going to be talking about submission and respect in the context of marriage. So some of those words that are similar that Peter uses, uh, 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. And then in uh, verse 18 of chapter 2, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect now, in 1 Peter 3.1, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. It's that same word being used. So Peter's point is not to say that in marriage, a woman is like a slave and a man is like a master. No, these are very different things, different kind of uh, situations. And yet, for the Lord's sake... We approach all of these different kinds of situations with the same spirit, a spirit of humility, a humility that despite at times bad circumstances, it's still able to make God look good, to make the way of God look attractive by the way we handle the circumstances that we are in. So in the word art of Peter, there is a consideration that takes precedence above your particular circumstance. Whatever your circumstance is, there's something more important in Peter's eyes. 
So for Peter's audience, the circumstance that he's, he's paying us, having us pay attention to, particularly at this time, uh, from his original audience, issues around politics and submission to authorities, issues of slavery, and even issues related to uh, marriage. But the bigger issue for Peter is the mission of God. All of these things have the potential to, pu- to push forward, to move forward the mission of God. And so what Peter's talking about, his word art is inviting us into a consideration of a kind of stance of humility. Humility in regard to our circumstances. So I did something, uh, spent some time this week thinking about what is, what is humility? How does humility make things better? Specifically related to the way that, that uh, Peter's using it. So uh, when you approach your situation with a spirit of humility, First of all, your actions are above reproach. You're not easy to dismiss. We're quick to dismiss people in this culture that we don't agree with. You think differently than me. Uh, Cancel culture, you're out of here. I'm not listening to you, go away. Uh, It's harder to speak against people who are actively trying to do good and their lives are producing good things. And so, when your actions in regard to respect to other people are above reproach, this allows the issue, the real issue, to be the issue. Not, we're not sidetracked because my political dialogue is as nasty and as dirty as everyone else's. We're not sidetracked from the real issues because I'm a slave that's being punished because I'm breaking all the rules. And it's not because uh, I'm a wife who talks back and disrespects and otherwise belittles my husband, withholds respect and honor from my husband. So it allows what is the real issue to come forward as the real issue. And then uh, humility, it breaks the cycle of retaliation. This is the going beyond the eye for eye and tooth for tooth kind of talk and thinking that is so common in the world, that Jesus invites us to take a step beyond that. That when we get hurt, when we are fearful, we tend to be vindictive. We tend to get nasty. And when we refuse to do that, it breaks a cycle of retaliation and opens the door to new kinds of possibilities. Uh, humility is always an act of faith. It's always an act of faith because it shows that you are trusting God for justice, that you are trusting that He is able to take care of you, that you're looking to Him to provide everything you need and not your particular circumstance, whatever, they, whatever it is. So 1 Peter 2.23, it says, Jesus... Peter says this of Jesus, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But Jesus recognized, I'm not going to get a fair handshake, but I know where I am going to get a fair handshake. I know the one who has the power to take care of this situation. 
to handle the mess of this. And so Jesus is the perfect example for us. And then if you approach a situation with humility, it calls unjust behavior against you or against a situation into question. It really makes the ugliness look ugly. And the Lord finds ways to make your cause shine bright. He picks it up. He brings it to people's attention. You attack a humble person. There's no shortage of people that will be there to defend a reputation, to defend a person of humility. And then finally, humility, it doesn't close doors for evangelism. It doesn't end the conversation. It creates the possibility of ongoing dialogue, of ongoing relationship. And that's some of the just, and this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just a few of the things that I sat there scratching my head about and thinking about. So for Peter, our good behavior, our meekness in the manner in which we carry ourselves, it all comes back to the mission of God. It's opening a door for relationship. Peter is writing in the shadow of a hostile world uh, where people are trying to figure out, what do we do with these Christians? Are these Christians good for our society? How do we handle them? Our society is still asking that question. What do we do with these? And we, we slap labels on them. They're like this, they're like this, but people don't know what we're really like. People don't know the truth of our hearts, and so they are always asking questions. How do, how do we handle these Christian people? Uh, so the political leaders of Peter's time and after, I read that letter uh, from Pliny the Younger written to Emperor Trajan, I believe it was. Are, the question they're asking is, are Christians able to be good citizens? Are or are they anarchists that need to be squelched? We need to take care of them because they're destroying our society. Uh, people are forming opinions about Christians. There's all of these rumors that are floating around about Christians in that time. What are they like? Some people are saying uh, they eat flesh and drink blood, they're cannibals. Some people are saying they pray to a crucified criminal as if to a God. There's all of these questions out there about what are, what are these Christians like because there's getting to be more and more and more of them. And people are looking for excuses. And Peter is taking those excuses, those easy excuses away when he invites the church to a higher level. People are looking to be able to say, aha, I knew those Christians would be dangerous for the empire. Aha, I knew those Christians would make your slaves rebel and they would take apart our institutions. Aha, I knew that if your wife became a Christian, it would ruin your marriage. 1 Peter 2.16 says this, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Live as servants of God. What this means is, you know what? We are the real deal. 
That's what we're called to be. We're called to be the real deal in a world where nothing is ever as it seems. We don't have skeletons in the closet. We don't have bodies in the trunk. We don't use the faith we profess as a cover-up for more nefarious activities of some kind. We have truly become what we claim to be. And that's, what the Holy, that's why we need the help of the Holy Spirit to truly become what we profess to be. And the way we do this is by living as slaves to God. You see, living as a slave to God, living as a servant to God, it sets us free regardless of whatever my circumstances are, regardless of even the context and situation of my marriage. So what this means is your freedom is not based on the political situation and the laws of this land. That's not where your freedom comes from, according to Peter. The right emperor, the right president, the right governor, that's not what gives you your freedom. And that means that getting out of a horrible circumstance like slavery just because you're not a slave anymore. That's not really what gives you your freedom. It does in a literal sense, but also there's a sense that your circumstances, you are able to live free even if you're in horrible circumstances. And that also means in regard to uh, marriage and all of our relationships, that having the perfect relationship, whatever that looks like, uh, the right marriage, the right spouse, um, that's not what gives you your freedom. Your freedom comes before this and from something deeper. Our freedom comes from living in, as slaves of God. And that freedom is based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's where our freedom comes from, based on what Jesus Christ himself has done for us, regardless of whether or not the circumstances I inhabit, whether they are perfect or whether they are horrible. My freedom comes from the Lord. So then when Peter says, in the same way, he says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The purity and reverence of your lives. So when Peter says in the same way, he's not talking about the similarity of circumstances. He's talking about the common factor of humility of heart. You approach even these marriage relationships with the same kind of spirit of humility that you approach other relationships, other situations, other circumstances. Uh, so while every man and woman and every husband and wife should weigh the implications of Peter's words here, Peter is dealing with a, a very specific group of wives. Uh, Peter is trying to encourage the wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. So let me just say that there are a lot of men in this room who would not be here today apart from the purity and reverence of your wife. A lot of you guys would just not be here 
apart from the way the Lord has used your wife. So, and we also have sisters in this church who we know and love who have been living with an unbelieving spouse for years. And sometimes that situation that they're in, it can be discouraging. Sometimes it can feel like it's never going to change. And yet, this is a situation that has existed as long as there has been a church. And isn't it amazing that the Apostle Peter himself writes to you and others before you in this particular circumstance with a word of encouragement. And so that if I were to summarize Peter's words, it would be something like, hey, whatever your circumstance, love your man well, wives, love him well. Don't give in to fear, respect him, love him. Your circumstance, it doesn't define you because you are already free in, you're already free in Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, you're free to humble yourself. You're free to serve. You're free to persevere. You're free to love. So just go on loving your man well and trust the Lord to take care of the rest. And the Holy Spirit, He will take the purity and the reverence of your life, and He will turn it into a message more powerful than any sermon. Trust the slow work of God to do this. So what Peter is describing, he's describing the power of humility in the Christian life. The power of humility in the Christian life. And it's a, it's a power that can save an unbelieving spouse. It's a power that can call back and rescue unbelieving children. And even if the fruit is slow in coming in your own life with your own spouse or your own children, you need to know that your faithfulness, it also builds the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It builds this church, your perseverance, your faithfulness, your goodness, despite circumstances that are hard sometimes. And beyond all of this, Peter's message is this. Whatever, whatever your circumstance you're in, God sees you. God sees you. Every pain, every frustration, every tear. And because God uses our humility for His mission and His purposes, the call for us is to make ourselves beautiful in every way possible. Uh, specifically women, but also men, to make ourselves beautiful so that we enhance and not hinder. We don't close doors to the gospel. So now it's natural that Peter moves this dialogue on and he begins to talk about beauty and what real beauty is. He says from 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty 
of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So we live in a culture that's obsessed with outward adornment. We always care and focus on the package on the outside. Uh, We live in a culture that's obsessed with youth, it's obsessed with sex, it's obsessed with health, it's obsessed with image and style and managing that image in front of everyone. Our culture is obsessed with a beauty that is only skin deep. That's the culture we're in. That's what we're swimming in. That's what we're drowning in. So those who fall outside of the cultural norms of what we define beauty as, you have to be this skinny, you have to have this bust size, you have to have this kind of package face. Those who fall outside those narrowly defined cultural norms, they have a heavy burden. And the burden of skin-deep beauty a skin-deep beauty culture, it's especially heavy on women. Do we recognize that? A special heaviness that, that women have to carry in regard to this. And it shows up in different ways. It shows up in the insecurities of our teenage daughters. It shows up in our own insecurities, women with their husbands. It shows up different places, shopping addictions, and it shows in the credit card bills. It can express itself in piercings or clothing trends or even tattoos. Appearance is everything, and the way I appear is what really matters. And it's this quest for the Pinterest perfect picture. Many people are seeking to live a Pinterest-perfect life. If you don't know what I'm talking about, praise God. I'm so proud of you. Regardless, I have to look like I am killing it, like I am gorgeous, like I am having the time of my life. Regardless of whether or not I'm depressed or insecure, or hurting inside. We are a culture obsessed with image management that, carry, that cares very little about the reality of situations, especially the reality of the condition of people's hearts. So I have to portray a Pinterest-perfect life and how many People are holding a broken heart behind that. And no one even cares. No one even asks those questions. How many people have that feeling of insecurity? And as you age and you move further and further away from the ideal of beauty of a youth-obsessed culture, that letting go, what what having children does to a body, what what age does over time 
Does that cause anxiety or insecurity? Or You see, the beautiful thing about our Lord and Savior is He doesn't look at the outside of the package. He sees the heart and what's in the heart. So you can find your security in Him, that He sees you in your loneliness. He sees you in your circumstance. He gives you true beauty, and that true beauty just flows into every aspect of our lives. And let me just say, it's, I, I know Peter is focusing on, on, on women, on wives, but let me just say, it's not just our girls in our culture that are affected by this kind of stuff. You see, we live in a culture that teaches our boys how to objectify women. I'm going to take a little side note. I just, I watched this part of the Super Bowl this year, and I was struck by the irony of uh, a situation where they're doing an ad or commercial talking about empowerment of women. I don't even remember the specifics of it. And then immediately after that, it goes to a halftime show with scantily clad women basically pole dancing that was so lewd that I had to turn it off. How is that fit together? That is some of the hypocrisy of the age that we live in. So one critical area of discipleship that we need so much, and fathers, this burden is on you, is to teach our sons how to recognize and honor true beauty. Teach our sons how to see true beauty and how to honor the kind of beauty that doesn't fade to help foster that kind of beauty to grow even more. Because in our silence, if we let the culture define this and we let the culture speak, your sons are going to learn that beauty is a commodity to be used. Your sons are going to learn that beauty is something to be consumed, it's something to be bought, it's something to be traded. And it's precisely the kind of beauty that fades. And we know what this culture does with faded beauty. It discards it. It discards it and pushes it away for the latest model, the younger thing, the whatever. So let me also say that Peter, he's not trying to set up a prohibition against things like nice clothes or braids or jewelry. If you have braided hair this morning, I'm not after you. If you're wearing jewelry, if you got makeup on, hey, I like makeup. Keep wearing it. It's great. He's trying to help us recognize skin-deep beauty versus something that's better. Skin-deep beauty with something that's much more precious. I don't know what you're laughing about, Nettie, but... Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> beauty that fades versus beauty that just gets more and more glorious. We have some classic beauties in this church. 
And as they age, they are becoming even more glorious. Real beauty, unfading beauty. A kind of beauty that honors God and makes God look good. So Peter invites us to become so beautiful, to become so attractive, that our lives actually open doors for the gospel and for the mission of God. So I ask the question, why, why is a gentle and quiet spirit of great worth to God? Why, why does God value this so much? A gentle and quiet spirit is a spirit that has faith in God. It's a spirit that trusts in God to take care of the situation, no matter how difficult or good the circumstance may be. A gentle and quiet spirit, it makes God look good. It makes the way of God look attractive. And it actually has the potential to open the door for missions. And then Peter goes on to say this about beauty. He says, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Used to make themselves beautiful. Let me just say beauty. Beauty, when it is the real deal, it never goes out of style. It never goes out of style. It doesn't fade it doesn't diminish. And it says, they were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So there's several things we need to unpack with this verse here. First off, we need to realize that for a Jew, uh, Sarah was the epitome of a beautiful woman. She was the full deal, the whole package inside and out. So when a Jew talked about beauty, Sarah inevitably would have come up. Sarah honored Abraham. And when you read the biblical narratives about Abraham, you know that sometimes Abraham comes up with some really bad ideas. How in the world did he think this was going to work? And sometimes it looks like Abraham was giving in to fear more than Sarah ever did. Sarah didn't give in to fear. But what, what this fear is that Peter's talking about now is that when it comes to beauty... Women give way to fear when they just give up, and they play the beauty game with all the world's definitions, with all the world's rules. That's why things got to keep getting shorter and shorter, show more and more. And and again, Peter's not talking about wearing makeup. He's talking about a sickness and obsession that is consumed with image and image management. It's a sickness that gets a hold of men and women, women's hearts that becomes so twisted 
that it begins to define value and worth based on shallow and fleeting things. It's all about the outside of the package. It's all about skin-deep beauty. And if you don't have that, you are not worth what that one is worth. That kind of thinking is sick and demonic, and it's twisted. But in the context that Peter is addressing, giving into fear would mean thinking that, you know, somehow I've been at this a long time. It just doesn't look like my gentle and quiet spirit is enough to ever change this situation, so I just need to give up. Giving into fear would be a refusal to be submissive to your husband. Giving into fear would be the fruit of humility. You know what? It's slow in coming and thinking that your efforts don't make a difference. Why should I even try anymore? It just doesn't matter. I should just give up. Don't give in to fear. It's Peter's message. Your men see more than you think. Your church sees more than you think. And even when they miss it, God doesn't miss anything, ever. He sees it all. And now Peter goes on to address husbands. And one of the unique things about the way Peter and Paul rewrite the, the Greco-Roman household codes for in light of the gospel is now, in contrast to almost anything else that existed at this time, there are serious expectations and responsibilities placed on masters, on husbands, and on fathers. Before, it was always written from the perspective of how does a master, how does a father, and how does a husband manage and rule over his property, basically? So this is unique, what's going on. And also, just let me say, uh, male chauvinism, it was a reality in the ancient world. It was a reality in that world, and it's all over the place just like male chauvinism is a reality of our world. It's a reality of our world. The difference is that in our time, we're hypocritical about it. That means we hide behind the language of political correctness, and yet the way we use people, the way we act at the heart, it betrays what we're really like. So we have women who can vote, and we use all of this language of empowerment, and yet disrespect of women has never been more rampant. So the gospel invites husbands beyond chauvinism, beyond chauvinism, and even into submission. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So when Peter says, in the same way, that means that everything he has said regarding 
women and wives. It applies to men and husbands as well. So all of those things that he's mentioned so far, purity, reverence, respect, honor, submission, a gentle and quiet or soft spirit, all of this language of humility, that's for us guys as well. That's for us to live that as well. And in addition to all of this, there are other considerations that Peter has us make. Uh, when Peter says, respect them as the weaker partner, it has nothing to do with inferiority, and it especially has nothing to do with value or worth. He is just noting that in general, men are physically stronger than women. I don't know if it's politically correct to say that, but that's what I've noticed generally. Uh, it means that uh, we're thoughtful about our wives' position in society. Uh, women don't always have the same social entitlement. Sa women don't always have the same social empowerment in every situation equally across the board. And we need to be aware of that. We need to recognize that. We need to honor that. We need to respect that as husbands and men. So the physical strength thing, I, you know, this just means that when there's a crash in the middle of, night, of the night that wakes us up at our house and we're worried that someone might be waking up, uh, someone might be trying to break into the garage, I don't say, hey, Alicia, will you go check that out and make sure we're safe? And take our dog Chai with you just in case. <laughs> but one crucial way you respect and are considerate of your wife is that you realize your position and responsibility you have as a man and as a husband. Gender means something in the eyes of the Lord. That as a man, oftentimes we are physically larger and physically stronger. And if you're not careful, you can dominate and bully your wife. There's a bit a lot of ugly behavior from men, even Christian men, who have run roughshod and bullied and disrespected their wives. A lot of immature and ignorant men who have rubbed their wives' noses even in the submission passages of Scripture in a way to dominate them. All the while, they, are largely, they largely remain blind and silent about their own responsibilities and the, their, the own, their own call to love and honor and respect. But what Peter is telling us is that in all of these passages, all these passages that he's been talking to us about in chapter 2 and chapter 3, no matter what the circumstance is, we have a responsibility to follow the example of Jesus. 
So what this means is no matter what the political uh, circumstances is, are for this time, no matter if you were a slave, no matter if you are a wife of an unbelieving spouse, no matter if you are a husband, whatever the circumstance, the call of the gospel is for respect. The call of the gospel is for consideration. The call of the gospel is to resist the temptation to be vindictive and heavy-handed in your circumstances when things aren't going your way. And the second point that Peter makes, in case there's any doubt, husbands, in the same way, is considerate of your wives. Uh, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. They get a full share. There's no, there's no half citizenship in the eyes of the Lord. There's no difference in value. They get the same share of the same inheritance. And you know what? It's all grace. It's all the grace of God. And finally, Peter closes with this curious point, uh, specifically tied to husbands, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, what's Peter talking about? When a husband carries a heart that has resentment toward his wife, what do you think that does to your prayer life? Lord, just take care of this woman. I don't even know how to handle this thing anymore. This. When a husband feels the need to bully or belittle or disrespect or otherwise dominate his wife, that means that our marital relationship, it becomes characterized by things like fear, competition, pride, when we carry this kind of stuff into our relationship, if we have that kind of brokenness in our marriage relationship, it affects our relationship with God. Whether you are the husband, whether you are the wife. You see, prayer is a way that we work together with God to accomplish good. And it's hard to work with God when we come to Him with fear and with pride and with selfishness. And we know that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That includes humility in your closest human relationships, husband-wife, sibling relationships, uh, parents with children. If those are characterized by humility, the fruit of prayer goes to a whole nother level. That's what Peter's saying. So James talks a little bit about this in the fourth chapter of his letter. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Somehow, the heart that is broken is a selfish heart that always in the end is going to be about gimme, gimme, gimme. I need, I need, I need, I want this. And husbands who fail to honor and respect their wives, in the end, there is a selfishness there. It goes both ways. 
wives who fail to respect and honor their husbands. It just comes down to the heart. A selfish heart will inevitably pray in self-serving ways. A selfish heart is a blind heart. A heart that fails to recognize the value of God's mission, including the mission a husband has to his wife and the mission a wife has to her husband. But Peter's lesson for us today, Jason, you can come up. This is the last point here. Peter's message for us today is that when we learn the lessons of humility, when we are able to give that humility, share that, you know, our relationships, the way that are characterized in Christ, mutual submission. It's not about us versus them. We've transcended that. It becomes all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And when we get our eyes fixed where they need to be fixed, when we humble ourselves and recognize His place above all, it allows us to step into a new freedom, a new reality, a reality that goes beyond our circumstances, a reality that can heal the brokenness of our marriages, the brokenness of our other relationships. When we get our eyes off of ourselves and all on Jesus, when we live the life of humility, we get to experience the fruit of humility. And humility before the Lord, it means look out, you're going to do some good in this world you're going to do some amazing good in this world. So let's stand and sing together.